I'm sure we've all heard the, the saying that sometimes the best gifts come in small packages. Now, when you're a kid, you kind of have a hard time buying that, right? Uh, maybe you've been there and your brother or sister has this huge box under the tree and you have this puny gift, you know, and there can't be anything good in that small box. And certainly that giant box is probably an incredible present, whatever it might be. I remember one Christmas sort of like this. There was presents under the tree, and, and I was given a gift in a small box. And you know, as a young boy, figured maybe it's a little charm, something sentimental, not something a young boy is all that excited about. But to my surprise, um, when I opened it up, I found maybe one of the greatest gifts you could give an eight- or nine-year-old boy. Now, if you didn't grow up in the 80s, this might not mean anything to you. But as I opened up this box, what I found there is something called Jeffrey Dollars. Now, Jeffrey Dollars are far better than silly American currency because Jeffrey Dollars only work at Toys R Us. And so that gift was to go into Toys R Us as a kid and buy anything you could possibly buy. That little box was far greater than I had anticipated. And when we look at the Christmas story, we see sort of a similar thing happening, right? We see what seems to be a very small package, a baby born in a manger. A baby like every other baby, except this baby's born even into a sort of poor family. They don't have the means, the name, the clout to even get a room in an inn somewhere. They had to take him out with the animals and sort of a little cave in the back of the building. It seems that there's not really anything special happening here. As amazing as childbirth is, it's very natural, right? It happens every day. Thousands upon thousands of babies are born every single day. But like that gift under the tree, we're reminded today that there's far more to Jesus than meets the eye. That we will certainly receive many gifts in this life. And you have received, probably yesterday some of you got some gifts. And all your life you've been given gifts, but none of them are anything like our Lord. Jesus is the greatest gift of all, bar, bar none. So today, as we look into this passage, uh, I, I believe Matthew is pointing some of the reasons that we ought to be in awe and wonder this season afresh about who Jesus Christ is. And what we're going to see is he starts pulling in texts from the Old Testament. He's bringing his reader back into those stories, back into that time, and he's seeking to show us that far from just sort of coming out of nowhere and falling upon the scene, that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of all that took place before him as the old covenant was anticipating the arrival of this baby in a manger. So let me begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we do come to you now and we need your help. We need your spirit here. We need your presence here. We believe that you are here. Um, I pray for this time of the preaching of your word that your people would have ears to hear and uh, hearts to respond and to believe. Um, Lord, our, our flesh is weak and it can be challenging at times to sit still and to focus. There are distractions and uh, I pray that you'd just give us a, a supernatural even focus and commitment in this time. Uh, that we all might hear and receive from your word and glory in Christ Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. So briefly, as we look at Matthew chapter 2, as Trevor, uh, I knew I was going to do that, Taylor, mixing up those twos, just read, 
I mean, tease. <laughs> um, what did we see? Well, of course, we see Jesus has been born in a manger, right? And that happened in the previous chapter there. And now we have this visitation of these magi or wise men that have come from the east. They're men of the Orient. And what's fascinating to me as I was digging into this this week is that these are basically Gentile scholars that have come from the east to worship the king of the Jews. Now, if you're familiar with Matthew's gospel, you know it has sort of a a Hebrew character to it. He's writing, it seems, primarily to Jews because he's constantly throwing out things, assuming that they'll understand the context, the Old Testament references, the messianic sort of flavor that's going on. And so in this gospel that's written primarily to Jews, from the beginning we see Gentiles coming in to worship the king of the Jews, a little um, a little bit of a revealing to what Christ has come to do, right? He's come to save the nations. He's come to unite Jew and Gentile. And so these magi come, and King Herod, who's sort of a sinister guy, he's not the most stand-up man, um, he heard about this king, and he's a little bit concerned, right? And so he gathers his wise men, his scribes, his scholars of the day, and he tells them, to go look into the Torah, go look into the Old Testament and find where this child, this Messiah, this Christ, was prophesied to be born. Now, I just have to stop there and say, wow, for a person that would believe that he could go to the scripture and see a prophecy that Christ would come to be born and then try to go kill that prophesied baby is, is amazing, demonic, really. But that's what he does, and they find the reference, and they realize, yes, Bethlehem is the place he is to be born. And so he somehow summons these magi, these wise men, as they're on their way, and he's a little bit crafty maybe, a little bit dishonest, and he says, when you get there, tell me where he is, because I want to worship him too. I really want to worship this baby. Really, he wants to destroy the baby. So they go, the magi go. And they, in verse 10, saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Is that not what Christ does when we lay eyes upon Christ in faith? He fills us with exceeding joy that is unsurpassed in all experience. They went into the house, saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him there. Now again, we know that Mary had had revelation from an angel that she was going to have a baby from God. We know that Joseph had revelation that the baby was from God. But just like the apostles, as they're seeing Jesus do miracles, they're sort of figuring it out as they go. Who really is this person in front of us? And I could only imagine the scene with mom and dad there, mom and stepdad, if you will. And here comes these guys sort of dressed fancy from the East, these important figures, and they fall down and start to worship your baby that was just born. I mean, what an amazing story that is unfolding here before us. Now, the, the, the wise men are given a, a dream, a vision, to not go see Herod. Herod has got a plan up his sleeve. So they go home, and then Joseph also is given a vision from an angel in a dream, and he is told he needs to go. It's time to flee because Herod is going to kill the baby, and they need to go, of all places, down to Egypt 
to find their safe harbor. And we read then that they went down there and they remained there for a time, not sure exactly how long, but until King Herod died, so apparently some decent amount of time, until it was safe to go out of Egypt and go back up north. And then eventually when Herod does die, they do finally leave Egypt and go up to Nazareth. So that's what's that's the context. This is going on here. And I want to focus primarily on the two passages that are quoted in verse 15 and in verse 18. And we saw there in verse 15 that they remained in Egypt until the death of Herod. And they came out and this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Matthew says this event fulfills what God spoke by the prophet. So we're going to do a little a little digging today, a little investigation, trying to understand what is going on. So turn with me, if you would, to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea is the last uh, or excuse me, the first book in what we call the section of the minor prophets or lesser prophets. They're not really less. They just have smaller writings. And Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, is the text that is quoted in Matthew chapter 2. And I want to read that to you. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, what in the world is Hosea talking about here. It sounds to me that he's talking about the time when he called Israel out of Egypt, right? That was in the Exodus, way back with Moses, back in the book of Exodus. But he's using this singular language. When Israel was a child, I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. He's speaking about, I believe, the nation, but he's using this language of corporate Sonship, that the nation as a whole is his adopted son, is his firstborn son. Now, remember, Matthew said that Jesus leaving Egypt is the fulfillment of this text. But this is not a prediction. This text actually looks backwards. So that's keep that in mind, because this text isn't predicting anything, as we might understand predictive prophecy. Hosea is talking about something in the past. He's talking about the Exodus. So is there another place where God speaks of Israel as a son, as his child in this singular form? There actually is. And it's in Exodus. At least one account is in Exodus chapter four. So turn with me there, if you would, to Exodus four. And this is actually the scene, the beginning of the Exodus. God is calling Moses to go back into Egypt and to stand before the most powerful man in the world at this time and to demand that he let his people go. It's a pretty serious calling, I think. Pretty, uh, a, a pretty frightening thing, maybe, to be the one asked to do that, even in the power of God. We understand Moses' hesitancy. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, 
when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So here we have again God speaking of Israel as his son in the singular. God is not speaking about Jesus right there, right? He's speaking about the nation. Hosea also is not speaking about Jesus. In his text, he's speaking about Israel. And the time when God delivered them out of Egypt. And I want to think for a minute about the historical moment of Hosea. Hosea is using language from the Exodus, and he's bringing the reader back into that context. Now, whenever you see an Old Testament reference, I want you to think not just of one little verse that's quoted, but the context of that verse and what is happening there, because the reader is often trying to bring you back into that moment. So what's happening in in Hosea? Hosea prophesied to the northern kingdom. You remember, you have David and Solomon, and then the kingdom splits north and south, Israel and Judah. Capital of the north is Samaria, Jerusalem in the south. And in about 722, God is sort of done with his people in the north, and he brings in the Assyrians, and he says in Isaiah, the Assyrian is the rod of my anger. And he brings them in to judge his people, to send them into exile. Hosea is the last prophet who is prophesying that this event is going to take place. So in this context here, God is reminding his people of his deliverance of them in the past. Again, verse 1 in Hosea 11, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. We go on, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim. That's another word for Israel. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. You hear that God is speaking of Israel as a child, that he has loved and and matured and raised and carried along. We see him contrasting their disobedience with his faithfulness in this text. Israel's disobedience and Yahweh's faithfulness. And as he goes on, he begins to tell them the penalties that are coming because of their sin. The curses of the covenant from the end of Deuteronomy are coming to bear upon God's people. He promised them, be faithful to me and you will live. Be unfaithful to me and I will disown you and send you out from the land. Verse 5, he says, they shall not return to the land of Egypt. Again, thinking about the Exodus, but Assyria (coughs) shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to me, the Most High, 
He shall not raise them up at all. So God is declaring to his people, you've been unfaithful. The Assyrians are going to come in with the sword and he will now be your king. You'll be under their rule. And they did that. And as they would often do, when someone comes into a land, they would destroy much of the land, take away all of the good people, the smart people, the leadership, and leave peasants there. And the Assyrians actually brought in a bunch of pagans, non-Hebrews. And that's why later on in Jesus' life, no one likes the, Samari- the Sumerians because they were, ha- they were mixed with other cultures because that was how they were basically erasing the Hebrew culture by bringing in other people. They intermarried and the pure Jews didn't appreciate them down the road. But we see always the grace of God. We see always the compassion of Yahweh. And look in verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. God is telling his people that you will be under the sword of the Assyrian, but I will save a remnant. I will bring a people home to myself. There will be a day that you will worship me again in your own land. So that's what's going on in the book of Hosea. What in the world does that have to do with Christmas? Why are we talking about the destruction of Israel on Christmas? Because Matthew takes this text, brings us back to this moment, and says this is being fulfilled in Israel. Jesus Christ. Hosea uses the language of the Exodus to explain what's happening in his day, and Matthew uses Exodus language to explain what's going to happen in his day, that Jesus has come to lead and deliver his people. So I want to look today at three reasons why Jesus is the greatest gift. Today and always, three reasons why Jesus is the greatest gift today and always. The first reason today as we look at this passage is that Jesus is the true and faithful Israel. Jesus is the true and faithful Israel. He is the true son of God who failed to do all that Israel was to do. Again, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15. Remember what he said? He said, this event This Jesus going into Egypt and then coming out after Herod was dead, this event was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew applies this language of corporate sonship that was spoken of Israel, and he applies it directly to Christ in the singular. Hosea's text was not speaking about Jesus, And it was not speaking about his ministry. But Matthew says this actually fulfills, finds its fulfillment today in Christ. Jesus is the true Son of God who has come to be faithful as Israel was not. 
If you think about the context of what we just read in Hosea, it was all about their failure, right? the failure of the nation of Israel, their disobedience. They were disobedient to the point that they were cast out of their own land. And if you're familiar with the book of Hosea, you know that God uses very graphic language to speak of his people. He calls them an adulterous bride, that they act as a harlot, that they've committed spiritual adultery against their God. Quite simply, they failed to do what they were called to do. And they failed to be who God called them to be because of their sin as we struggle with the same thing. But Christ now has come. And He is the true, faithful Son of God. He is the one that did what Israel failed to do. Think about some connections here. Think with me as we think about Israel and Jesus. When Israel leaves Egypt, they come to a stopping point. They come to a body of water, and they're unable to pass, right? And Moses strikes the ground with the staff of God and the water spread, and God's people begin their wilderness wanderings, journeying through the waters of the Red Sea, but they're spared from getting wet, if you will. Jesus begins His ministry, His wilderness wanderings, through the waters of baptism. Not through the Red Sea, but He is immersed at the outset of His ministry in the waters of baptism with John the Baptist. Israel would then go and spend 40 years out in the wilderness wandering and being tested by God. Did they, fa- did they pass? They failed, right? That first generation, all of them except uh, Joshua and Caleb died there because of their unbelief, because of their lack of faith. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness, and it is there that he is tested, and it is there that he passed the test. He does not submit to the temptations of the enemy. We see that Israel was brought eventually into the promised land, the land of Cana, the land flowing with milk and honey. But that land never really lived up to all the hype, if you will. They never cleansed the land. There was sinners in their midst. They were idolatrous with the pagan people that were around them. God said, cleanse the land, and they failed to do it. And eventually they're cast out of their own land, cut off for a time from God. But Jesus Christ enters into the promised land, not led by a mediator, but based on his own merits and authority. Thus, we see that hope has come in the incarnation. Hope has come in the birth of Jesus Christ. He is the true Israel or the true faithful son of God that came to accomplish all that Israel failed to do. And you too now here, if you're a If you're a believer and you're here, then you are also God's adopted son. Amen? Praise God for that. You are an adopted son, as Israel was. But sometimes it seems that we look a lot more like Israel. We're stubborn and stiff-necked. We're unfaithful to the covenant. Uh, We look more like the world around us than we do the nation of priests that God has called us to be. And maybe you're even here today and you feel like that unfaithful Israelite. 
Uh, You've fallen short of the glory of God. You've been disobedient to God's covenant. You've complained as Israel did and murmured against God. Uh, Maybe you even feel that He's cast you off. You don't sense His presence. You've looked back to Egypt so many times and longed for the things that you once had in the world. Maybe you even feel that He's done with you, that He might just leave you out there wandering in the cold and in the dark. But God's true Son, God's one and only faithful Son, Jesus Christ, has come. And we can have hope in Christmas or at this Christmas season because even in our failing, even in our falling short, even in our disobedience, even in our murmuring and grumbling, even in our stiff-neckedness and stubbornness, if we are in Christ, we share in His privileges as a son of God. All that Christ merited, He merits on behalf of sinners. So we can have hope this season because the true Son of God, the true Israel has come to accomplish all that they failed to do and all that we as well fail to do before God. Secondly, Jesus is the greatest gift because He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Moses. Now think with me about what just happened in Matthew 2. There is a wicked king who wants to destroy all of the male children. He wants to erase this Messiah off of the earth. And the way that Jesus finds safety and refuge is he goes down into Egypt. And then think back about Moses' story. Moses was being hunted, if you will. All the male children were being hunted by Pharaoh. They were to be erased. The Pharaoh came in and he was concerned that there were too many Hebrews And he put out an edict to kill all of the small male children. When they were born, they were to die. But Moses' life was spared. And how was it spared? He went down into Egypt as well, like our Lord. Think about the story of the Red Sea. They come to the Red Sea. There is nowhere to go. It seems that they're going to perish at the hands of the Egyptians. But God had given Moses his staff, the staff of God. And when Moses struck that staff into the ground, the Red Sea parted and the Israelites were able to walk through on dry land. But Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, comes and he simply walks on water because he is the Lord of creation itself. He holds it in his hand and he, he, he controls it by his very speech. We love the scene of the Israelites in the wilderness led by Moses starving in the desert. And I, I'm, I could be sympathetic with them. They're saying, man, there's, there's nothing to eat here. There's nothing out here. What are we to do? And God, through Moses, gives them manna from heaven, right? Miraculous bread. I heard somebody yesterday called it angel cakes. I thought that was, was kind of cute. <laughs> angel cakes from heaven, right? Bread from heaven, miraculous bread. You want to eat? There it is on the ground. Gather it every single day and fill your belly. And they were filled and full. But it lasted one day. And if they tried to hide it and keep it, because that's what we do, so they all did. He said, don't keep it. Yeah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. We'll keep it. And it was rotten and it was gross. You could fill yourself with as much of that bread as you possibly could. And the following day, you will hunger again. Even miraculous manna from heaven. 
Jesus Christ fed the multitudes with a couple loaves of bread that He multiplied, and then He claimed Himself to be the bread of life. That if you eat of Him, you will never hunger again. And He, re- he reminded them about the manna from heaven. He said Moses gave them manna, and they died. That bread helped the grumbling of their stomach, but it did nothing for eternity and for their soul. And Jesus says, eat of me and you will receive eternal life. Another time out in the, out in the desert, out in the wilderness, God's people are impoverished. They're, they're dehydrated. There's nothing to drink. And imagine the scene as you feel that you might even die from dehydration. You're out in triple digit weather and someone strikes the rock and a spring of water flows out. Glorious, clean water. And they drink and they drink and they receive their full. And then they thirst again. And that water satisfies as great as it was in that moment. It satisfies simply for a moment. And Jesus sits at a well next to a woman that was hated by many. And he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We see Moses led the people to the promised land, to the land of Cana, flowing with milk and honey. And Moses got to that mountain, and it was there that he stopped because he had sinned against God. He had disobeyed God's command. And God told him plainly, you led these people for 40 years and you will go no further. And it was there on that mountain that Moses died, only getting a glimpse of the promised land. And Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, brings his people into the promised land himself. He needs no leader. He needs no shepherd. He needs no mediator. He, on his own authority and his own merit, brings his people into the promised land. How does this relate to Christmas? Because just like Israel, we need someone to deliver us. Just like Israel needed, we need someone to speak us God's words, to reveal God to us as Christ does. Just like Israel, we need someone like Moses to plead our cause before God, to stand in the gap and fend off the judgment of God that is due to us. We need someone to feed us with true bread and give us true water. We need a leader and a champion to lead us into the promised land. Moses got all the way to the cusp, but he fell short. And he, on his own strength, could not bring his people into that land. But Jesus Christ has paved the way. He is the perfect prophet, the perfect mediator. One greater than Moses has come. And He is the greatest gift this season and always. Thirdly and lastly, Jesus leads His people on a greater exodus. On a greater exodus. Now, as we're reading Matthew chapter 2, it says there in verse 16 that Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children. In Bethlehem and in all that region 
who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, this is a a tragic scene. An edict is put out. Every child, two and under, is erased from memory. Noah would have been in that number. I I, I heard a, a man point out something this week that I thought was interesting, that Jesus had no contemporary of his age from Bethlehem. They were all gone. A two-year span. There was none that would have been brought up in that same time he was. And then Matthew says the same thing, basically, he said before. What was fulfilled, or then was fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Now we have another citation from the Old Testament. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew tells us that Jesus, leaving Bethlehem and Pharaoh, killing all of the children, um, is a fulfillment of this text from Jeremiah 31. So why don't we look there briefly. We don't have time to really dig into this section as we would like. But again, what I believe Matthew is doing is he's bringing the reader back into this context of this passage. He doesn't want us to just look at verse 15, but he wants us to see the larger narrative and themes that are taking place back in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, quoted pretty much verbatim, verse 15 Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now what's happening here? Jeremiah 31.15 is an odd verse a bit because it stands out as the one really negative in, 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 in what is much good happening here. Now there is certainly, again... Sin, judgment, exile, and deliverance happening again in this verse. And I believe that's why Matthew takes us here again, bringing us back to this Exodus thought. Now, Jeremiah 31, and really 30 to 33 in that whole range, God is telling his people that you've been unfaithful. But now he's ministering to Judah. You've been unfaithful. Babylon is going to come in now, not Assyria, but Babylon is going to come in, decimate you, and take you captive. And here is God's command to them. Allow it to happen. Your repentance demands you submit to my judgment. And if you will lift up your hands and allow yourselves to be taken in, again, I'm going to save a a remnant. I'm going to deliver a group of people that will be back here eventually, and you will worship in this place. So it's a very similar account to what Hosea is prophesying. Judgment is coming. God is gracious. And if they would relent to the judgment, he will eventually deliver them. There will be another exodus that takes place, another deliverance of God. Jeremiah 31 is significant because it is one of, if not the clearest, text regarding the new covenant that Jesus would come to inaugurate. This and a couple texts in Ezekiel. He says in verse 31 of Jeremiah 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new 
covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. There we are again, referring to the Exodus. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And it goes on. But notice this time, God is not just stating, I'm going to bring you back in the land, but now there's a prophecy of a new covenant, a greater covenant, an unbreakable covenant, where everyone that's in this covenant will know the Lord their God. I will be their God, and they will be my people. The old covenant was a mixed multitude. Every single male child on the eighth day took the sign of circumcision, which was a sign of the covenant. They were not all believers. They were not all faithful, as we saw that first generation that fell in the wilderness. This new covenant, everyone that's in it, as we understand now, will be born of the Spirit and will be in Christ. And Matthew, again, now citing Jeremiah, bringing the reader back into that moment, and he says, this is now fulfilled in Christ. There's weeping over these Hebrew children, but a new covenant has come. A new deliverer has come, and he's going to lead his people on a greater exodus. Anybody remember that time where Jesus and Peter and James and John went up on a mountain together, the four of them, and Jesus did something amazing in their eyes? He sort of removed the veil a bit, a peek behind the curtains. Luke chapter 9, uh, we read there, that he was praying, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And they saw something of Christ that they had never seen before. His, his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. And it says they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. If you have a, a King James or a New King James, I believe it says there his decease. Basically, he spoke of his death, which he was just about to accomplish. But interestingly, the Greek word there is exodos. And I don't think I need to tell you what that word means. So literally, in the original language, he stands there with Moses and Elijah, and he spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So again... What does all this have to do with, with Christmas? Well, Jesus Christ has come to lead his people on a greater exodus than Moses ever could. You and I are like those Jews in Babylon, trapped in captivity, trapped in a dark land, cut off from the special presence and blessing of God. As they were enslaved to Babylon, we were enslaved to our own sin. We were like Israel, wandering in the wilderness, literally going in circles for 40 years, making no progress, unable to feed ourselves spiritually, and lost in folly and idolatry. We, like the Israelites, needed need to be led to the promised land. We need one to deliver us from our bondage, to bring us from our former wilderness wandering, and to deliver us. But on our own, we're hopeless. And this baby born in the manger, this unsuspecting, insignificant appearing 
baby has come to lead his people on a far greater exodus than ever happened in the Old Testament. Now, you might say today, that sounds really great, but pastor, sometimes I still feel like I'm there. I feel like I'm trapped in that wilderness wandering. I feel like I'm in captivity in Babylon. The world around me is overwhelming. I'm succumbing to the flavor of the day, the spirit of the age. I don't seem to be salt and light. I feel like I'm in Egypt. I feel like I'm in Babylon. The trials and disappointments and grief of this life, our own shortcomings and failings. Well, beloved, this side of glory, there, are, there will always be wilderness trials. Right? We know this all too well. We walk through those valley lows and those mountain highs. We wish they would all be glory and singing and praise. But the reality is this world is cursed. But Jesus Christ, the one who has come, the baby in the manger, promises that he walks alongside his people through that wilderness, through those valley lows. We live in this already not yet time. He has already won the victory for us, but he has not yet come to consummate all things and to reverse the curse fully yet. So we live by faith and not by sight. We are led by the one that leads us to still waters and green pastures. But he is the greatest gift because he has inaugurated a far greater exodus than Moses could ever bring his people on. And he leads you and I, beloved, not to the land of Canaan under the law with a temple and sacrifices there. But he leads his people to a new heavens and a new earth where he is the light, where his throne is there to dwell in the midst of us. And we will forever worship him in that place. Israel failed. Moses failed. We, in our own strength, fall short. The Exodus, as amazing as it was, left the people of God stuck in their sin, still needing a true deliverer. And only Christ. Only Christ is that deliverer. So church, as you as you consider the, the gifts that maybe you received yesterday, as you consider, think about for a moment, all of the gifts that you've received your entire life. Where are they, where are they now? All the boxes, all the stuff, much of it in a landfill, all the, the things that we buy our kids that are just discarded in a number of days, all the stuff that you've had over the years, Gifts you've been given, maybe you have a few that you love. Much of them are probably in a box or long gone. May we today, and as we look into this new year, remember that one precious gift given to us. He seemed very small and unimpressive in a, in a manger, sort of lowly at first glance. Another baby born into this world in poverty. But Matthew shows us, I think today, but he's far greater than that. He is the whole fulfillment of history leading up to his birth, and he is God's greatest gift to men.